uh, we are diving into our annual sermon series on the Psalms. This is our 11th year that we take some portion of the summer to explore the Psalms. And if we did 10 a year, we're still four years short, just in case you're wondering. There's 150 of them. There's 150 of them for a reason. Because in them, God trains our emotional, emotional and theological habits. The habits of our speech and habits of our heart that change us and also change our way of interacting and even seeing the world. And so in these habits, through the Psalms, there's simple things like we learn to say, thank you. Or wow. There's some harder things that it teaches us, it, it shows us, it gives us lyric for. And those are why? Or how long, oh Lord, where are you? And another one, super important, on a very elementary, therefore super important um, level. God, I'm sorry. The Psalms give us lyrics to sing and to savor in our singing throughout all the possible circumstances in life. They are a gift to us. And today's, we're going to learn something of the habit of humility, which is a combination of wow and woe. That we would be in awe and be grateful. And if there's anything we could learn in our day and age, it would be totally countercultural, is humility. See, some of the ways in which we approach God, and I'll say in the modern West, we all have our own ways throughout history of, of trivializing who God is or making him in our own images, but you live in the Western modern world, so I'm going to talk about ours. Sometimes he's betrayed as a buddy, or worse, like a love interest. And sometimes he's, I'm thinking for the last couple of centuries, seemed inept, hapless, helpless, a, a crutch for the weak, or if you talk to Nietzsche, dead. But today's psalm is, is sings of his power and teaches us to sing of his power, his grace, his sovereignty, his mercy, his welcome. These lyrics below is, are songs of majesty and sovereignty and power, and they are actually four parts. It's a quartet. If you are using your bulletin, um, it's the first three, the first three, the, fir the, the first three, the second three, the third three, and the last two. And there are stanzas. And what I'm attributing to each of those stanzas is first the people, then the father, then the son, and with some poetic license, the fourth, the spirit. So first we're going to do is explore these stanzas, and then we're going to try to apply them to our lives in certain ways. The first is the voice of the people. It starts with this unknown character. By the way, this changes scenes and points of view all the way through, so it's sometimes hard to pick up where, who's talking when. But it starts with this unknown character. It could be the psalmist. It could be a persona that he's creating to, to, uh, to say this. And he says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then he gives what those counsel, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers are, going, are saying. They say, they lift their voices of the people as the nations and say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
It took me about, ooh, until about 15, 18 years ago where I realized what my favorite genre of music was. Because my playlists are pretty diverse, but what I realized is that my favorite genre of music is actually a cross-genre, which is protest songs. You give me some 60s and 70s Guthrie, uh, Scott Heron, Dylan, Baez, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, I'm in. You give me some 80s Rage Against the Machine, Public Enemy, Springsteen, I am in. The aughts, they're still good, but a little fewer and hard farther between those. Lupe Fiasco, The Flaming Lips, Bright Eyes, Green Day, I'm in. And today, you could have me listening to Mandarin Orange, Kendrick Lamar, Childish Cambino, or Tyler Childress. Because they sing the protest songs. Don't worry, some of you got at least some of them. Or all of you at least got some of them. Um, if not, come see me. Uh, there's so much power in a protest song. There are people who are trying, they see things need to change, and they're creating art that would hopefully be part of that change, at least at the level of imagination and a stirring of uh, the emotions. And it is a protest song precisely, which is what is being explained here or told here. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Fight the power. The kings, the people want to fight the power. It's a, it is a rage against the machine that, what, that keeps them from self-rule. And that is about as a American kind of apple pie kind of thing. And we don't tread on me. I mean, we did go to war for taxes and representation. But there's a problem with this protest. And that is it is a protest of the people against God. Against the one, the only one who's ever done justice perfectly and promises to bring it. The one who, if you read the rest of the Psalms, is like one of the great authors of all protest songs. He teaches us to protest, but not against him. He teaches us that we actually do protest against him. The nations rage against God, the one who gave them their very voices to rant. And nations here is probably best ethnicities or religious. It, back in the ancient Near East, religion, ethnicity, and uh, politics, all, that's all one thing. All one thing. And here's the hard part about this, is that what it's saying is that this is our voice, our protest against God and his anointed, his anointed, same word as Messiah. It's like we all, it's like what, um, what Milton gets in, gets, tries to get across in Paradise Lost when he puts in Satan's mouth these words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And he says about hell, it is the only place you're free. We get this. God tells us that we are angry at him. And you may be like, mm, that's not the way I existentially experience it. Maybe not feel like an accurate description of you, but as a pastor now of 20-some years, I would attest differently. And more importantly, the scriptures tell us that we are, even if we don't quite know it. More on that later. So that's the first voice in the quartet, a protest of the people against God. The second voice jumps in, and it's, this one's a little easier to see. It's, about, it's the voice of the one who sits in the heavens, the Father. And it says, he laughs. 
the, whole, the Lord holds them in derision. That's a word that's always coupled with, it's more like teasing than anything. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, it may seem strange to you that God would respond to these protests and laughter. But God is amused by the silliness and the naivete of it, of our protest. I mean, think about what this must be like, you know, like, you are the sovereign God of the universe, so big, so strong, and so mighty. And we show up with like, we're going to take you down. I, was, I watched a lot of lacrosse um, championship on TV last weekend. My favorite shots were when they would pan to these six-year-old kids without their shirts on because it was hot, and they, a goal would be scored or someone would get a good hit, and they'd be like, yeah, as if they had anything to do with any of that other than the excitement of it. And it's like we flexing, we're bowing up like we swole to God. That's funny. I mean, I've known parents that, I, I, let's just say that I've heard of parents that um, have been in the middle of showing right and legitimate anger towards some behavior, but it's also hilarious at the same time, so they're laughing or giggling. So we plot and flex, and God is amused, but... It's not just amusement in response. There is anger there. And we need to, we need to ha- make sure that's before us. He'll speak to them in or from his wrath, and it will terrify them. You know that parental look, right? There are some of you, like my wife's mom, who made an absolute art form of looking at you and displaying anger that was necessary and good to be received by the pun who needed its receiving. And so this is where God's love kind of shows up and kind of right in the middle of the stanza, it's the laughter and then there's the anger. So um, then he simply says the words, the lyrics read, as for me, I'm thinking of that parental face, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And if you, if you're, paying attention, those don't sound like angry words. It is coming from a place where he's rightly angry and amused, and he's responding to it with simply this, I put in charge who I put in charge. He doesn't sing the anger, though it is born of that anger and laughter. He is singing of his authority. And the divine anger is always scary, I get that, But he's also bringing a kind of assurance that says, I am in control, and I'm in control of all those who think they're in control. And he's saying it very seriously with a little giggle. God is angry. And you need to hear this, and we'll get on do this more later. But God is angry about the ways we have devastated his good creation. At the way we've devastated our world, ourselves, and others. He loves his creation so much that when it is defiled, he's mad. He's angry because instead of embracing this kingdom of love and justice and then flourishing in beauty, we are trying to overthrow it. So the first two stanzas are God, or we're angry at God, and the second one is God is angrily amused at us, but bringing us a sense of things. The third voice comes in, and it's, 
quote, is clearly the voice of a son. This voice speaks in first person, kind of comes in as another product. This is a quartet. It's a barbershop quartet. No, not barbershop, but some type of quartet. <laughs> you like that, Chris? That was funny. It was good, good. I'm glad. Um, <laughs> and it jumps in straight without introduction. I tell you of the decree, this voice says, the Lord said to me, so the Lord now has spoken to him and he's telling us, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. This voice steps up to the mic and says, this is what the Father said to me, that I am the Son. And if you ask of me, I will give you the nations. The third voice is the voice of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, it had an original meeting, and embedded in that original meeting was what we see about Jesus. Psalm 2 is a coronation song. It was sung for the coronation of the king. And um, so whenever that royal ceremony happened, they would sing this, this lyric. But this lyric is charged with eternity. This stanza reveals that the decree of God, which is language that sounds, uh, that would be received as much more epic and eternal. So this decree of God is is, is saying that this is my son, this is my son, and he is the king. The king is the divine son. I'm not saying any, everyone who read this back then were like, oh, I bet you he's going to send his only begotten son so that we might not perish but have everlasting life. But I am saying that that is embedded in that language in a way that it'll make you wonder when Jesus shows up. And when Jesus showed up, what happens in the New Testament at least three explicit times they use this psalm to say this is Jesus. I'll give you just one in Acts 13. This has been fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is the, what captured the imagination of Psalm 2 in the early church. Even in the Old Testament church, they definitely had a sense that this was also messianic as well. So the unknown voice is saying that I am God's son and I am the king and I'm going to reign over creation and provide redemption. This is Jesus. But you're still kind of in a pinch because he says you'll break the rod of iron and dash the pieces like vessel, like uh, clay vessels to the nations. Now, just quick pause. You're allowed to love your country. But if you love your country in a way that doesn't show that, um, that ultimately Jesus is taking out all nation states... It's not healthy. Jesus has come to shatter every, every nation because he's breaking the backs of our rebellious ways. I know this doesn't sound like shiny, happy Jesus, but it is Jesus nonetheless. This is the third part of our four-part harmony. We have the angry, that we're angry, God is amused and angry, and Jesus is coming to do God's bidding, which is to break the rebellion. Please don't forget Jesus. He was incredibly merciful, totally um, uh, kind and gracious in so many ways. But he also said, I didn't come for peace, but I came for the sword. So he's going to break something up that needs to be broken up. When Jesus entered into the temple, he didn't lose his cool. He says he showed up there, saw the things that were going on there, and then sat down and made a whip. I mean, he didn't just go, oh, 
found a whip. He made the whip. I don't know how long a whip making takes, but enough to have calmed down if he needed to. But he know he wanted to display something differently. Now, let me give you a caveat, which I didn't imagine I would have to do as a pastor. But 25 years in, I say this. The church never has the right to take up the whip or the sword. That's not our job. In the church and in the kingdom of God, it is better to lay down your life for your friend and your enemy than it is to take one. The church doesn't do that. Our weapons are love and sacrifice. They're true weapons of truth and beauty, of service. They're true weapons against the evil in our, in our day. So we're still fighting, just not in that way. So lots of tension in this quartet right now. So we got to get, I mean, there's got to be some resolve or something like that. So the voice of the Spirit comes in. Last voices in this passage is what I'm loosely calling the, uh, the Spirit. I'm convinced, at least theologically, that that's what the Spirit is doing, either as a narrator directly or as another one of those voices that shows up. And he chimes in and says, Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth, serve the Lord Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. I just can't get over this, this juxtaposition of things. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That scary glory. He says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in that way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, and then that's the last bit right here. The end of the song is, blessed are those who take refuge in him. It's fascinating. The voice of the Spirit sings a different kind of note. It's a, a note of warning. Guys, the raging, just be warned. Be wise about this. You're still flexing. It's a kindness to warn. Don't revolt against God. Repent to him. Don't run away from God. Run to him. Serve in that trembly, awe, fear, rejoicing kind of way. Embrace him. Don't try to smack him away. Bow your head. Do not stiffen your neck. The son is the anointed king, and the father has declared it. And he will deal with all injustice. There is no way out of it. Because he's a good God. And you guys, you kings and rulers, you, you pick a fight, you're not going to win. It's not going to go your way. And the only safe place where the refuge is, is if you would lay down your arms and your life to the one who made you. And this is where the, the declarations of grace sneak in again. Because he says, lay down your arms as he, the Lord Jesus, put up his arms and showed us a different way of the kingdom. He's just saying, when you stop, the Spirit's just saying, when you stop your rebellion and kiss the king, there you will find refuge. It's amazing that this whole thing with full of all this angst and anger, it ends with blessed are those who take refuge in him. Unbelievable. There's only one safe place in the universe, and that is after having kissed, be sitting in the bosom of God. The lyrics end, and the music draws quiet, and the quartet is done. Now what do we do? If you're like me, it's pretty angst-filling, trying to read it, trying to figure it out. I had to read all the commentaries to make sure I got the parts right, and, you know, that it doesn't come easily or naturally, so it takes a little work. 
It doesn't, it doesn't quite sound right, this quartet. Something feels out of whack. But I think the problem is, is because it's training us in emotional habits and theological ways that we're not used to. And we have to learn a different way. I mean, the, the goal of the psalm for God's people is to be able to sing it with authenticity and beauty and understanding and grace. It is fair to say that one of these voices is not like the other. That would be ours. That other ones are in line with each other. They are harmonized, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and not in some good cop, bad cop kind of way. Not because the Spirit's coming in as the kind of, oh, um, sympathetic lawyer. They are in cahoots with this together, singing. No, it's a divine show of power and in authority, in authority, and authority to then declare to us his grace and his mercy and his refuge. Fear God, kiss the Son, take refuge. It's majesty and mercy, it's glory and grace. That's what the psalmist is trying to get us to do. And what we learn from that is that because of that first stanza, that we realize that our angers are misplaced. We have angers, but they're misplaced. Because it's usually like to those people, right? Or to our family and friends who frustrate us. And away from, or toward the God of all justice and mercy who created us and gave us our own sense of justice. You guys, we don't even know how angry we are most of the time. Until you see your dog doing something wrong or Someone frustrates you across the dinner table, or a coworker does X, or the kids do Y, or the parents do that. We don't even know how angry we are to ourselves. And yet our anger is often in its place. It's not necessarily for the sin and, 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 and glory of God being, for sin um, hurting the creation that he made, or that the glory of God is not being pronounced in the world. And so we sing these war cries that God's not doing it the way we want to. Or we go, well, God certainly loves me, but he's not doing what he needs to do over there with them. Our anger is too selfish, too explosive, too self-centered, too full of vanity and malice, too bent on revenge. It's misplaced. And this is why he gives us the next important thing, or thing that I think is most important for us, is that we have a misunderstanding of God's anger. And I want to say something in transition for that. For those of you who have experienced violence by hand or word or neglect, especially of those who have been abused by family, friends, pastors, even strangers, I want to invite you into this way of being to have these songs that... that Show how misplaced the anger what was, was done to you and gives you a sense of, the God, of God's anger and its purity and goodness and why it's born of love. Anything and everything that had happened to you will be accounted for by God's justice. And we pray also in his mercy. This is what Psalm's trying to do, to give us a different set of emotional habits because we have misunderstood God and his anger. And so we need this different imaginative space 
Because we tend to treat like God's anger and his love are rival attributes. They don't fit. But God's love requires anger over all the injustices in the world and around us. Tertullian said, can, uh, God can only be completely good if he is the enemy of the bad. I like that. And to put his love of good into action by hatred of evil. This is how it must shape our hearts and our minds and our heads. And I quote now the great theologian J. Melton Sanders. Jen. And you know Jen loves mercy about as much as anybody in the world, but this is her quote. This is the God we want to serve, though I never like to hear the words God's wrath. I do want to serve a God that does not tolerate evil, even in me. Nothing arouses God's anger except the evil rebellion against his beautiful creation, his reign of love in the world, which was meant for our good. So God's anger is born of this love. He's upset about the lack of this love. This is why he says, now come to me and take refuge in me. Come. My reign is better. We, we treat God like he has this quick temper problem, or we pretend it just happens every once in a while. It's not a big deal. You know, it, it, God doesn't have temper tantrums. It's not the way he works. He never bullies us. His anger is deliberate because his love is what founds that anger. And his love and mercy are more powerful than that anger, which is why grace is what quells the anger of God. They come from the same place, his love. And so what is this for us? As we train our hearts to sing this, look, you're not going to get it right all the time. You just, you just, it just takes years and years of orienting your heart in these ways and picking up this psalm and trying to figure out how you can sing with it. But it all comes down to taking the refuge in God, taking refuge in the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Do you know what the word blessed is best translated in English? Happy. Which is such a weird way to end this psalm. After all the angst and stuff, it's like, but here is where happiness is. It almost sounds way too modern, you know? Your happiness is in, the ref, in refuge and taking refuge with the Son. It means that when Jesus came, he was destroying all the violence in the world. Like a pot broken, a clay pot broken. But he did it in a way that he, like a clay pot, was broken. He took on the anger and the brokenness that we deserved. He took on not so much the language, but the result of the protest. He took on that anger in his body. He suffered and he died and he was buried and took on God's wrath. That was so that he could create a kingdom and a people that are born of his love and mercy. Because that love and mercy is a more formidable power the power of the resurrection of the dead, the vindication of the Son in the final coronation hymn, and the shattering of sin's power over us. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that didn't deserve any anger. He had anger, didn't deserve any anger. But he took on that anger so that we would not taste of it for eternity. You know when Jesus flipped off 
flipped off, <laughs> flipped over. <laughs> Been a long day. Um, flipped over the tables. You know what that was about? Sometimes it's like, oh, well, there was like commerce in the temple. There's always commerce in the temple. It's okay to buy and sell books at the, you know, church, whatever, vestibule, but we don't really do that. We just take, you guys take them, because you were taking them anyway, so we decided not to charge you for them. Um, <laughs> last two things were not in the notes, just in case there is one in. <sighs> no, it was because when poor people couldn't show up with the sacrifices, um, they didn't have them. You could buy them there, and what they were doing was price gouging them. What made Jesus angry was that you would put anything like that in the way of finding the mercy of God in the temple. That's why he did it. Because there's like, no way, we'll throw the whole thing down. I will break it like a pot. In this act of premeditated vandalism and violence, in his anger, deliberate, careful, knowing exactly what he was doing. Why? Because people were being kept from finding refuge in God. And that anger so much, you can't say it was turned inward completely, but was taken on by him because he's saying, there's no way I'm letting people not be able to find refuge in God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son, Father, Spirit, teach us to to be able to sing these lyrics in an authentic and good way. Free us to acknowledge our anger and yours, but then run to safe haven in your mercy. We pray in your name. Amen.